Hi, I'm Natalie, and welcome to Infinitely Irrational, where I discuss the real, eccentric, and complex history of math. In each episode, I unearth the wild stories behind some famous or not-so-famous mathematicians. Today, we continue our discussion of the feuding foes by attempting to answer the following questions. What's the best way to be a supportive parent? How can you write a personal statement that's sure to get you into your dream college? What do either of these have to do with math? Let's find out. So we are back with Ben Orlin from Math With Bad Drawings, and we are going to chat today about Gottfried Leibniz. I love, I love Gottfried Leibniz. It's my favorite. I know, you are like team, team Leibniz. <laughs> I really am, yeah, team Gottfried. <laughs> okay, so, so Leibniz here was not born on Christmas Day or other Christmas Day. He was actually born in the middle of the year. Right. We don't want to count that too much against him, but it's true. He, he has a less cool birthday. <laughs> so his, uh, when, when he was born, after the, you know, whatever the prescribed time, he gets baptized. And so apparently his eyes opened in the middle of the baptism. And his father, who was an ethics professor, he said this quote, I prophetically look upon this occurrence as a sign of faith and a most sure token that this, my son, will walk through life with eyes upturned to heaven, abounding in wonderful works. I mean, what a great dad, first of all. Yeah, I know. So you're making me realize I, I got to say this about my you daughter. Got, I next was time. just going to say. <laughs> yeah, I, I have not said right, Next time my daughter comes home and like opens a kitchen drawer, I prophetically look upon this open drawer <laughs> as this young child shall walk through life, opening the drawers of wisdom. <laughs> you you got to come up with a phrase. And then for some event, you know, her, her what, her second, third birthday, yeah, her second yeah, birthday is coming soon, up. Yeah. Yeah. You, need to, you need to have something ready for that then. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's important that it begin, I prophetically look upon this moment. Yes. <laughs> and make, make sure to get somebody to, to take a take a cell phone video. Yeah. Yeah. Ideally, I'd like it to sound like it was translated into English from yes. three different languages, you know. Classic. Classic. Yeah. Um, run it through Google Translate. Who knows what you'll yeah, get. Yeah, yeah. Just go back and forth a few directions. Yeah. yeah. So Leibniz also, his dad, alas, passed away when he was pretty young. Yeah. But but you know, so he didn't get to see all the wonderful works that his son did end up doing. Gottfried though was he absolutely became he was a great student, super smart, awesome. Even even now like he is known in good circles. Like back then he was known in great circles, now he was known in good circles. And I love this um I love this sentence that that you had sent me. I'm going to read it and then you can expand on it. Yeah. He envisioned a horizontal windmill, a pneumatic gun and a quasi-submarine boat that would dive underwater to evade pirates. Yeah. Yeah, he was just he was just a polymath, right? You were, you were talking with Rob about the word uh -huh. polymath. Uh, totally fits Leibniz. He was just a little bit of everything. He you know, he did like a thesis, I guess it was sort of like a law degree he was doing, but a sort of on how to reconcile difficult cases in the law. He served as a mediator between uh, like a Protestant Catholic thing, but sort of like two warring religious factions, which actually his attempt to mediate went terribly. But at least he was like, he was the guy they called in, you know. Uh, he he was like the expert on China in Europe for a while. Geology, he knew a lot about geology. He had these really interesting modernizing ideas for the economy. Uh, and in particular, one was essentially making sure healthcare was universally available and trying to proactively prevent plagues. 
Hashtag Team Leibniz. Yeah, yeah, right. No, definitely. Yeah. It's sort of funny, actually, that both of their lives, I guess this just says something about the 17th century, but that both of their lives, you have, you know, Newton did all his great work mm-hmm. during a plague, not all his great work, but it had his miracle year during this plague year. And Leibniz, that was one of the things he was thinking about was how do you prevent plagues from being a huge problem? And anyway, it's sort of funny to think about that during the coronavirus pandemic, that both no of them were thinking joke. about that, too. Oh, yeah, no, total polymath though. He just did a little bit of everything. And he came to, he came to math pretty late. Math wasn't the first thing he worked on. He'd really kind of explored a lot of intellectual life before uh, before getting to math. Man, that's so interesting. You know, we have a we have an interesting story too that I want to talk about here about both I guess what Newton and Leibniz and alchemy. So Yeah. Newton basically did his thing, you know, didn't publish for a couple of years. And he did a lot of studies on alchemy in general. And so like, you know, papers in drawers and, you know, hanging out everywhere. No, it didn't really say anything. But Leibniz, he decided that he wanted to join an alchemical society, which, yeah. you know, in my mind is I'm imagining that you need, you, you need to have a cigar. You need to also have bolstered leather chairs and there's like a password and all this stuff yeah, yeah. to get in. <laughs> <laughs> when he gained it, like to get in, to actually get into this, he did some pretty wild stuff. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think it's, it's worth mentioning that alchemy at the time, we look back on it and we think like, how could Newton who did all this great science have been like dabbling in alchemy? What nonsense? Like why, how could he have been into like this witchcrafty stuff at the same time as he was inventing physics? And the answer is like, well, chemistry grew out of alchemy and like people didn't really know at the time what was going to work and what wasn't going to work and what was promising and what wasn't. It's sort of, I don't know, it's like today, I don't know, I think about something like crypto, which like maybe Ooh, yeah. the entire world economy is going to run on crypto in 50 years. Right. Or maybe it's not. And <laughs> crypto is just this dead end. I just don't know. Right. Like I have no idea. Lots of people are very excited about it. It's hard to tell from the outside. And so I think of, I think of alchemy as a little bit like that. Like maybe it's going to turn into chemistry or maybe it's going to be nothing. And we, mm-hmm. we just don't really know. It's so funny that that's how you think of it, because I think of it like, oh, alchemy, like, you know, my ideal state is fantasy stuff. And I'm all about Gandalf. Keep it secret. Keep it secret. like I am like, yeah, alchemy is a real thing. It's going to it's just living in like a parallel world to us. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, alchemy, no problem. <laughs> that's really funny. Like, the 17th century is a magical time when alchemy worked. And so, of, of course, course, you want to join the alchemy this? society. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but so so Leibniz joining the alchemy society, he, he wants to join this alchemical society. And basically, you have to write a little essay to get in you know, a little admissions application, you know, why I want to join the alchemical society. Oh, so like any university now, he had to yeah, list basically, yeah, this is, this is his per- personal statement, you know. <laughs> and so what he does is he just he like looks around a little bit, finds some alchemical texts, finds a bunch of buzzwords and just strings them together into this fluent gibberish. That's amazing. Um, you know, just using all the jargon. And they're really impressed. Like, oh my gosh, this guy Leibniz, he gets us. He knows what we're about. Yeah. <laughs> and so they bring him in and he like spends a few months there and he's like, eh, these guys don't know what they're talking about. Uh, and then it calls them so like, eh, it's a gold making fraternity, which I guess. They had made him his the secretary of their whole thing. Like, they really mm. respected this guy. He's like, no idea what's yeah. happening. You yeah, like, he's a brilliant guy. So it makes sense. They, well, they were like, oh, you get this guy into the club. He's going to be useful. And then he, he eventually got a sense of it. And he was like, eh, this is not for me. This is, this is not going anywhere. As far as it goes, Newton was definitely one of those people that he was all about. I, I don't care who reads my stuff. I'm, I'm not going to publish whatever. A perfect introvert. Leibniz, on the other hand, was not. And he wanted to chat with people, much like many of the folks that we've heard about thus far. He loved writing letters. Yeah, 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 yeah. He wrote either the numbers or something like we have. 
a thousand correspondence he had during his life and a total of more than 15,000 letters. Just a lot of letters. I don't it's know. Like I've, my, my Gmail inbox has that many coming in, but I don't send that many going out, <laughs> you know, and it's a lot easier for me to type an email than it was for him to write a letter. Yeah. And a lot of my emails that I send are like, okay, great. Thanks. <laughs> Presumably Leibniz's letters were a little more detailed than that. Um, so I think, I think of him as like the guy who he, he's the guy who he would have had a hundred browser tabs open. He would have been texting 80 different people and all these different group chats. Um, teams. Oh yes. Everything. All over Slack. He definitely would have been a Wikipedia editor. I mean, Wikipedia would have made him so happy. He was oh, all about the would. big universal knowledge, right? This idea that people are going to come together in a community and share their knowledge and be impartial and rational and just arrive at truth together through conversation. He really believed in that. He, you know, he tried to find sort of intellectual societies and academic societies. He, he was really all about, yeah, the collaboration and the sharing. Look at what he was trying to work on, too. Like, he was trying to figure out how do we make the plague not be a problem? And you talked about how do we get health care for, you know, the masses and stuff like that. So seemed to be very altruistic in general. So 100% I can see that. Let us compile all our knowledge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, def definitely a vain guy, too. I mean, very, very full of himself. Um, <laughs> certainly, you know, bright guy knew he was a bright guy. There's a line that he had where he... Um, Let's see. At some point after, I guess it was after giving his thesis. That's right. After defending his thesis, he said, I expressed my thoughts so clearly and felicitously, even my opponents publicly declared that they were extremely well satisfied. That's amazing. <laughs> like, I was so good. Even my opponents were like, damn. He's boasting. Gottfried knows it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and it, it's funny, right? Because like all his letters, all his everything, if you try to piece it together, it's not really organized. Yeah. And actually, you know, we've got this philosopher, Bertrand Russell, that has this quote about Leibniz and his disorganization that's funny following on the heels of what you just said, where he was like, I'm so amazing. And everybody yeah. was like, yeah, let me tell you as Leibniz how amazing I am and how amazing other people think I am. And so other people are now going to weigh in. Uh, Bertrand Russell, everything that he wrote seems to have required some immediate stimulus, some near and pressing incentive, which fair, to please yeah. a prince, to refute a rival philosopher, or to escape the censures of a theologian. He would take any pains, but for sole purposes of exposition, he seems to have cared little. Yeah, it's funny, right? Because on the one hand, he was all about the communication, but yeah, he, he needed to be for a purpose. He wasn't just mm -hmm. going to sit down and write his big treatise, his, his version of the Principia or the Principia or whatever we want to call it. He was in dialogue with people. He wanted to refute people or he wanted to persuade people, but he was he was a very social creature. He, he wanted the esteem of his colleagues and he wanted to communicate freely with them. And it's interesting that you say that because when, like, what actually started him on the one true path to righteousness of calculus was uh, <laughs> when he was, he went to London uh, in the late 1600s and he was hanging out with John Pell, who was, you know, British mathematician at the time. And he was like, look at this cool algebra thing I can do. And then John Pell was like, except for... That was already published like years ago. That was so last week. What is wrong with yeah, you? Yeah, right. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, for, for Leibniz, that was for him to want to be, you know, like we just talked about, you know, to have the esteem of his peers and everything else. And also very Newton-like, too, in that respect, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. Both very proud people. Mm -hmm. You could yeah. see what's what's starting the path to why they why they form two factions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, yeah, that, that incident you mentioned, I think was really quite scarring for Leibniz, really embarrassing because he was, you know, he was so proud of his contributions, his intellectual contributions, and he'd come late to math, but he liked to think that he was doing cool, novel mathematics and to find out that this technique that he thought 
he'd come up with, you know, was actually already out there in the literature was really embarrassing um, and later uh -huh. got used against him as a kind of cudgel by, by Newton and his allies. Newton and his allies. It just oh, yeah. sounds... Oh, Newton, Newton. <laughs> Interestingly, he's... Newton had way better allies. We'll get to this next episode, but Newton had <laughs> way better and more effective allies than Leibniz did. I mean, and it's interesting because, uh, what, like a century earlier, we're talking about Descartes kind of trying to slap Fermat around the same way, where Fermat was like, look at this, this method of tangents, and, um, you know, that Newton then subsequently relied on. And... Uh, Descartes was like, we're going to have this mathematical challenge. I challenge you in this corner. And then Fermat was like, this thing is the method of tangents. It's very easy to do, as you can see. All the other mathematicians were like, I mean, he's right. And Descartes was like, well, if he had said that to begin with, then it wouldn't have been so bad. Like, it, I, it's not me, it's him. He's a jerk anyway. So, I mean, and it seems like, you know, this is what we're setting these two up for as well. Yeah, there's a very parallel confrontation that happens mm -hmm. a few years later um, with with Leibniz kind of playing the Descartes here. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, and it is yeah. I mean, he was he was so supremely self confident. Leibniz was that I think he we'll see sort of next episode. He always kind of underestimated Newton and didn't understand what a what a kind of cunning adversary Newton would be. Uh, and well, I mean, nobody thinks I'm number two, right? Right. And especially both of these two had the, you know, had the sin of hubris, I guess. And so, yeah. Oh, yeah. so that, no, that's, that's going to be fun to talk about. Yeah. But anyway, so he gets like, you know, subsequently scarred and he's like, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. So then he starts jumping in and reading everything that he possibly can to get his hands on. And so uh, once he felt appropriately ready to join the conversation, he did. And he actually uh, was, if you don't like what they're saying, change the conversation. He kind of did that he started using definitions. And so we talked about Newton using fluxions and now influence. Fluence, and yeah. Leibniz uses what we talk about today with calculus. Yeah, yeah. He was so good at coming up with notation and language for things. So, you know, even words like constant and variable. Those are Which those make are things. Perfect sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he has. I think this is some stuff I've been researching lately. But I think the equal sign that we use, he, he didn't invent it, but he was the one who, at the time, the sort of natural choice for him would have been to use this little funny kind of fish-looking symbol that Descartes used to mean equals. Huh. But Leibniz was like, no, no, no. I like, I like the, I like this equal sign. You know, the one, the one that we use today. And so he was the one who really helped he made to fetch happen. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what he did. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's, that, 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 that should definitely be the title of his uh, his biography. <laughs> Some title, at least. Uh, yeah. So he did. You know, he did other notational things. And this is something that you talk to mathematicians. You know, even today in the 21st century, and mathematicians love his notation for calculus. Just the it's way beautiful. that he, yeah, the way he expressed the ideas. This big, beautiful, curving integral sign that mm -hmm. looks like this kind of fancy s really captures the idea of like it's kind of this infinite fluid thing and his his notation for derivatives looks like a fraction which is nice because a derivative isn't exactly a fraction but it's a mm -hmm. lot like a fraction it's basically a ratio of two right, right. really small things and so writing it that way as a, though it looks like a ratio is, is really quite nice you know and his little symbol just just putting a d in front of something means that you're talking about like kind of an infinitely small part of the thing so dx is like an infinitely small piece of an x which is, it just it turns out to be a really nice way to write things. And, and I wonder too, right? You know, we talked about the fact that he, his life, he was a mediator. He was a polymath. I'm just going to say that because, you know, <laughs> shorter than describing his resume in two words. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a long resume, yeah. Right. 
And because he probably dealt with so many different people, you think about Newton, who was like only focused on the one small group and the very advanced. And you think of Leibniz that talks to, you know, everybody, how do I make this accessible to everybody? And so likely, I mean, that's probably what his head was thinking. Because if Newton had talked to literally anybody else, obviously his work is so hard to read. Um, But Leibniz having the opportunity to be social or i guess the desire to be social yeah 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 and he had he had this kind of specific vision for what calculus would be he was the one who gave us the word calculus too right he, he applied that word calculus which it comes from the um little pebble like on an abacus oh you know? i did not um, know that oh yeah 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 calculus yeah that's why also um i think one or both of them steven Strogas talks about this in his book but one or both of them died from um i think it's leibniz i guess died from a uh, calculus in the sense of like a kidney stone but there's like uh, calculus also because right, it means pebble it's a latin word for stone or pebble or rock and so it comes up in in medical contexts too where you get yeah. uh, you know a calculus a renal calculus i guess is a Fact, kidney stone. you know more latin than me well, I, we've now we've now covered everything I know in this in this <laughs> podcast, and none of that, but half of the stuff I've said is lies, and it's up to the listener to figure out which half. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so so Leibniz gave us the word calculus, and the abacus to me is a really good image, right? You picture an abacus, and it's just like this little toy thing, and you move around the pebbles, mm-hmm. and you figure out the truth, and that's all you have to do is you have to slide some pieces around, and they reveal the truth about the world. And that's what he wanted calculus to be too. Calculus was going to take this really hard philosophical idea of the infinite and the infinitely small, and you just move these little symbols around the page, and now you understand the truth. Now problems have been solved. And he had this dream of kind of doing that with everything. He was like, we should come up with a universal alphabet that lets you resolve all philosophical questions that way, where you express them with symbols, and then you kind of manipulate the symbols, you know, you distribute across the parentheses, and you cancel the like terms, and then bam, you've got the truth. And that was really his vision of what what it should be like to, to reason and to think. It should be you apply the rules, and we arrive at the truth. Which is basically every current mathematician ever these days now. Yeah, it's a very modern view. And also, it's, it's like, that's what a computer is, really. I mean, a computer is this symbol manipulator. Yeah. And, and Leibniz was also really interested in binary notation. He was one who developed a lot of our current understanding of binary and how that could be useful. So there, was, there were a lot of ways in which he was really a very computational thinker. He worked on this kind of four-function calculator thing for a lot of time. Was, was it really, the same one that Pascal worked? That I, think, he, it, I think it was, it was growing out of Pascal's work, uh-huh. yeah. Um, I think it, was, it was a kind of bit of a boondoggle. I think Leibniz spent years on it and didn't really like get all that far. Um, <laughs> Took them a Look how entwined work. everything is, right? Like, yeah, we just yeah, talked right. about how entwined all the things are. I mean, oh, everybody breaks it open just a little so that we can eventually have this awesome breakthrough. Yeah, yeah. And, and everybody, right. I mean, what they all do is they all go back and they read and learn about whatever the most recent interesting people have been doing. You're always mm-hmm. building on whatever the current cutting edge is. You're never just going to leap your way to the cutting edge. Even someone like Newton was really informed by lots and lots of current work. He wasn't just even though he's very solitary, he, you know, he stood on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, that was exactly the same thing I was going to say was that he said, like, he's, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, that quote that was in, oh, who was it? Uh, Keith Devlin's book, you know, I mentioned it in the Fermat trilogy, because Mm. it was like, how do you actually get this great breakthrough? It's because you're stand, you're walking through steps that others have made, and then you become, you know, the giant, even though it's not just you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. And I think both both Newton and Leibniz probably had a bit of the syndrome where they say, oh, of course, I built on the work of many brilliant people. 
And you're like, well, which, brilliant, which brilliant people? Right, exactly. Which brilliant people? Oh, many, many giants in the past. Look at me. Look at me. <laughs> Here I am up on the shoulders. And it's like, well, Newton, maybe you want to acknowledge Robert Hooke, who did a lot of the work that you did, you know, and maybe, maybe Leibniz, you want to talk a little bit more about the things you learned in these exchanges with these. No, 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 no. I, I, I stand here on the shoulders of giants. Or maybe either of them want to mention the fact that, you know, it, it's not clear they knew, but a lot of this calculus had been developed a century or two prior in India. It's like, nah, those are giants in the background, you know. Don't <laughs> say anything. <laughs> right, exactly. Me. Yeah, yeah. I am yeah, the right, giant. Right. Focus That's on me, standing please. Yeah. on the giant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a sidebar, but you know who's also like this? One of my favorite songwriters is Paul Simon. Uh-huh. And he's totally, I've listened to interviews with him on occasionally, and I can't do it because his, his lyrics are so wise and beautiful. And in interviews, he's so petty and oh doesn't want to give anyone else credit for anything. It's like, oh, Paul Simon, you're a beautiful artist. Just <laughs> just be generous with credit. Uh, but that's, uh, that's not the way geniuses are. Geniuses are not apparently often very generous with credit. Yeah, we should encourage geniuses to be a little more generous. I think, yeah. I think they really should be. Also, I guess I'm, I'm glad I'm not a genius. Like everybody would probably hate me. <laughs> Yeah, I guess, yeah, you get you get a lot of subtweets when you're a genius. <laughs> well, you know, I think we've done a good job of setting the stage. We we talked about Newton and we set him up and then we talked about Leibniz and we set him up. And so now we, we really see kind of why this controversy has started to come to be because of their personalities and what they expected. And, you know, Newton's like, I'm doing this thing. I'm, you know, making it more elevated. Leibniz being shamed and so now on the next episode we are gonna talk about dum, 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 the controversy the Star Wars versus Star Trek again with my my sound effects <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm excited for the sound effects thanks for joining us for today's episode of infinitely irrational can't get enough of the math and fun visit us on the web at infinitelyirrational.com for math and research behind the stories connect with us on Facebook Instagram or Twitter or email at podcast at infinitelyirrational.com. If you love this episode, subscribe, follow, and share. See you soon for the next one.